Policy Beyond Politics podcast series by Center for Public Policy Research. Center for Public Policy Research or CPPR is a public policy think tank located in Kochi. We engage in diverse fields like urban reform, livelihood, education, health, governance, law and international relations and security. Our podcast series covers a host of issues of current and contemporary relevance in the public policy domain. Previous episodes of our podcast series can be found on our website www.cppr.in. I'm April Susanna Varki, Research Associate at CPPR. In this episode, we will explore the challenges faced by women to get employed in the manufacturing sector. For this discussion, we have with us Mr. Shrein Chatterjee, a lawyer by training, having received his degree from the West Bengal National University of Juridical Sciences. Shrein is an independent research consultant based out of New Delhi. His work is primarily focused on projects that relate to labor, public data, infrastructure, and finance. Hi, Shrein. Welcome to Policy Beyond Politics. Hello, April. It's good to be here. Thank you for joining us, Shrein. Before we dive into the topic of discussion, just out of curiosity, I'd like to know how you developed interest in this field of labor studies. Right. Yeah, and uh, I thank you for that question. Yes, I, I mean, uh, in many ways, the topic of our podcast is manufacturing, and uh, I did come to the manufacturing sector first. Uh, so uh, I am a lawyer by training, as you had mentioned, and part of my first role uh, as a working adult was in a law firm, uh, kind of doing financial deals, doing loans, doing bonds, etc. And the first deal or the first uh, intro that I had into the labor field was a project uh, where we were working on mapping the kind of bank finances and the bank funding that enters into this manufacturing. Uh, sector specifically the garment sector and uh, yeah that was my introduction to the to this sector to the manufacturing space in general uh, from starting from a place that i was familiar with and uh, a good 6 years back and now i can uh, so in this podcast also i'll be focusing a little bit on uh, one particular part of the manufacturing sector which would be the garment sector so yes that's how i came here and that's my area of expertise as well great to know that i look forward to hearing your perspective on women's employment in the manufacturing sector so talking about the manufacturing sector it has become the largest employer in india with a share of 39% of total employment provided yet the proportion of female employees is only 12% of the total workforce when the total for workforce includes 27.3 million people so shen you can see that there's a huge gender gap in spite of this sector being the largest employer what according to you could be the reasons for this kind of gender gap yes <clears throat> so i think to begin with uh, a little bit of context must be set into this question and uh, the first thing is that manufacturing sector is critical to any developing economy and it's critical to india's economic story also and in whichever way one slices it it's quite important and a keystone part i think for a long time manufacturing was uh, like i'm not appraised of the exact numbers 
the recent numbers, but I think it was second only to agriculture in terms of the number of people it could absorb uh, on an yearly basis. And uh, in either case, it's a very sizable chunk of a working population. So anything that happens in the manufacturing sector as a whole uh, will have an impact on working lives, right? So coming to the question proper that you're asking, which is that we are looking at a figure, which is the headline number is around 12% of uh, all labor participation yes. rates, right? So yes. if you look at the headline numbers of what we call female labor participation rate, it, it is not really, uh, it is a quite a grim reading. And the grim, grimness of it is not just in the short term, in that by that I mean it's not something that we are looking at say five years, six years or even a COVID related uh, setback. But this, this uh, dipping of the numbers have been happening for the last couple of decades now. And one way of looking at this is uh, kind of zooming in a little bit from the overall headline numbers. So if you zoom into sectoral parts of it, you will see that the story is a little bit uneven, but there is hope for finding some kind of nuance if one looks at specific supply chains and specific industries, right? But in my book, there is really no scope for any argument that kind of, you know, normalizes the state of affairs, saying that, you know, this is how the market should be developing. Uh, this is where we are. And let's, let's not think too much about drastic change. So one thing is very clear. And if, if people were, are interested, I think there is a report by the United Nations uh, or the U UN Human Development Report. And it's almost a decade old now. I think it came out in 2014. That shows, uh, you know, like just the effect of rising female employment on overall human development indicators. So coming from that perspective, I think the need for change is very clear. Uh, so we need to find answers and solutions to this problem. Uh, to first to stem this uh, flow, to stem the number of women we are losing on a yearly basis from the workforce. And, but also not uncritically. We need to find solutions. Uh, but not uncritically and certainly not at the cost of, you know, pushing this vulnerable working population into either say a debt trap or into a permanent situation where they are getting de-skilled. So some solutions might appear to us and in the market, which are quick fire solutions to female labor participation rate. This can be something like platform work, like we see in the delivery space or in the uh, housekeeping space, or even say the beautician space. It can be micro work like we see in, with Amazon, or it can be a pay to work scheme or a pay to train scheme that like you see in some of these online freelance work where you pay a certain amount of money. So these kind of solutions will have to be really be examined because what they uh, tend to do is take a vulnerable uh, population who does not have jobs, gives them a lower quality of job, and then the numbers are made up. So we really need to focus on the numbers, but we cannot focus on the numbers in such a way that you know we lose focus of our main main problem which is not just get jobs to women, but also have jobs which are of a certain quality. Coming then to something that is uh, more within my comfort zone and the manufacturing sector is a vast field. And uh, I do not feel comfortable talking about the entirety of the manufacturing sector, but I'll talk about one particular sector and I'll talk about the garment sector, right? And the garment sector is very interesting, especially uh, being what it is in India, uh, at least in two out of the three main garment hubs, garment sector is a highly feminized industry, which means close to 80-90% of all the workers are women, right? And in a way, this is not really the question that you are asking in terms of the number of people you are losing, but it is clear that in garment sector also you are losing people. 
and my uh, kind of objective when looking at the garment sector here would be to if we can figure out what incentivizes workers women workers to be productive what incentivizes women workers to stay in their positions long term in one sector maybe we'll have good lessons and good ideas to take across to the manufacturing sector in general and with that little bit long context i will jump into like the two main things i feel are lacking in the garment sector why we are seeing this loss of uh, loss of, of women on a yearly basis particularly in industry that's women dominated right so the first thing that i need to focus on and this is not something that people haven't talked about it is the fact that at many parts of the supply chain of garments there's a lack of like wages which are of living standards wages which are not just minimum wages or fair wages but wages that actually allow a woman to take care of her household or any worker to take care of the household so in in this case a gender pay gap when we already have levels of wages that are below wa living wages is doubly problematic because it pits workers against each other it pits female workers against male workers it pits female workers older female workers against younger female workers so lower than adequate wages automatically makes a lot of work in the nature of part time in pure economic terms this is very difficult for us to justify because we see profitability of this sector as being very high when it comes to the multinational part of it when it comes to the supply chain when you trace it all the way into the global north we see that this sectors are actually not doing all that badly uh, consumers in the north are actually paying a lot of money and they're willing to pay more over and above the cost of production to make sure that the supply chains are uh, the people in the supply chain are taken care of so one of the main reasons i think is economic is the fact that women do not get access to a living wage the struggle that women face to reach a living wage is significantly harder than the struggle that men workers face in reaching that living living wage the second problem i would like to talk about and again specific to the garment industry is the lack of opportunity at the management level and this is something that we come back again and again and it's quite tragic where we see highly skilled workers who have spent 12 14 16 years they have reached a certain level of pay and a certain level of respect in the workplace uh, after which they really feel stagnated based on which they want to leave the industry and they do not get good exit options in the sense that they do not get to rise in the organization into a management role into these garment factories nor do they get to go out of the garment factory and into a place where they can apply the skills you know like we all understand this like in a service role if you, one of us has spent 10 years in a white collar service role when you leave the industry it's not like we're walking away with without anything right we walk away with a set of skills we walk away with a uh, certain kind of earning potential uh, which is accepted across the industry so in for the garment sector particularly both internally and coming out of the industry these this kind of opportunity to transfer skills is not available uh, this sometimes it might look like a good thing to many garment manufacturing companies in that a workforce that is young and a workforce that is transitionary may be cheaper may be cheaper in the long term but it also you know precludes certain things it precludes the fact that you don't have a mature workforce you don't have a workforce that has been around for 20 years 25 years and when you have that kind of workforce you can really climb up the value chain you can produce quality of goods and uh, this i'll come to you know what is the quality of goods that we need to produce uh, in the garment sector we know we are fighting against vietnam we are fighting against bangladesh and it's very clear and the indian government also has made this point many many times that you know we need to rise up the value chain as an industry we cannot keep you know picking the bottom of the barrel so to speak so to push the industry overall into a higher value orbit i think one of the first things we need to do is to be able to retain a workforce 
and retain a workforce beyond two years, four years, five years. Garments is a place where it is also a grey hair profession, where highly skilled work exists, can exist at various types of levels. And our focus in labour law should be to make sure that this workforce sticks around and they do not either quit or uh, or you know stagnate, right? So. One last thing I want to mention before I <laughs> close my answer on this is that uh, the fact that we need to push the industry up the value chain and uh, this fact is well accepted, right? And there is a big part that technology also can play. There is in the garment sector, the government of India has been consistently been uh, allocating funds, been pushing funds through technology upgradation schemes. Now, what I feel is good about that scheme and what is missing is that the focus on pushing companies up the value chain is very essential. And that is something that the state has the first responsibility of looking into, not the only responsibility, others also have responsibilities. But there is a way wherein this kind of specific funding or specific kind of push should be linked to gender outcomes. So if you are using certain kinds of technology, does it help to reduce the physical burden on women? Is it easier for women to use? Can we do a training before we push a certain kind of technology? So these are the kind of questions I would think are required right now in the policy space, particularly in the garment sector. And to make the gender question kind of front and center, not to the exclusion of other kind of efforts that are going on, but to tie it in, to tie all of it in and to tie it into the technology, to tie it in to the effort that we are putting in to get the industry into a higher orbit of the value chain globally. As you rightly said, Shen, retention of women employees is indeed low. Also, from our uh, field research, we understood that when it comes to promotions and career growth, even in those aspects, women fall far behind men. In this context, do you think the labor laws could be a game changer in bringing more women into the workforce and in retaining them? Thank you for that question, April. I think this is a very good opportunity. Uh, you know, to set some of the some of the context straight. Um, so, the first part of your question, I think, is a little bit more general, and I'll in, like I'll address the general part of the question first, which is, you know, what is the role of labor law in ensuring employment, in ensuring economic outcomes? What is that role, right? So, this usually is used as a fairly common argument. You know, the fact that labor laws have certain effects on economic outcomes. This is used as an argument most commonly that we see it being used is uh, when a proposal for a detailed or a very strong or a very uh, enforcement heavy labor law comes in. This is usually the argument that is uh, that is kind of played out is that, you know, a too strong a labor law will affect the amount of employment, will affect the amount uh, the confidence of businesses. Correct. And finally, it will affect the rate of economic growth as well. So. I want to clear that up quickly before I come to the specific part of the question, right? So there's some excellent research material and specific to India as well. And there's this paper by Simon Deakin and Antara Haldar. And I would want every one of our listeners to go ahead and look at that paper where we see a very kind, very clear kind of empirical connection being made to what labor laws do and what effect they have on profitability, employment, as well as economic growth. So the main thing that they find out is that there's a very weak linkage in terms of economic science like there is really no no way of telling for sure when you remove a bunch of labor laws immediately growth or employment will pick up similarly we find reports coming out of the vivigiri institute that is uh, one of 
the minister uh, ministry of labor and employment's uh, favored institutes i think it's supported also by the ministry so even in their long term studies of regulation and deregulation uh, of labor laws they have found this thing that in in the indian conditions at least uh, there is economic growth and labor laws are not fully linked at the best they are weakly linked so what i want to uh, tell our listeners and have our listeners walk away with from this is that look simple deregulation without any concurrent increase in other kind of state capacity or in the capacity of companies or in the capacity of civil society just simple deregulation will not have the effect that everyone is looking for if the idea is to increase economic growth looking at labor law as a sole singular magic bullet or a silver bullet will not have the uh, will not have the effect and it is also true that if you keep doing this many times over uh, as a policy move, move uh, the effect of the regulator in the labor space will also reduce like this one small example i want to give which is when lockdown happened uh, our relevant ministries i forget which one exactly it was i think it was uh, it was not the ministry of labor and employment it was the ministry of home affairs that actually published a circular saying that this from this moment onwards every employer needs to pay back wages for whatever work people have done now that lockdown is coming you really need to pay off your wages to your workers and then set them let them do what they want but you need to pay the back wages so this circular actually was there and it was public and it it held the force for like i think two and a half months before it was withdrawn but even in those two and a half months there was no there was no compliance and we know that we have all seen the migrant crisis so in many ways labor laws and labor regulations or even labor guidance can be very progressive but the effect on the ground may not be what we think it is so i'll just stop with that line of thought on that bit uh, having said all of that however is it true that indian labor laws need to be relooked at it is sure it is true that we do need a set of laws that are more streamlined we need them to be more predictable and to be more effective in their application but at the same time we do not lose sight of what those laws were meant to do like the standards one the need for industrial peace and harmony that those laws came in and brought to the field that we should not forget because many of these laws are old and they may feel like colonial laws but they also came around after a long period of dialogues and back and forth right so uh, labor laws again i think to the extent that we see that they give choices both to employers in terms of uh, economic choices in terms of flexibility as well as to workers in terms of job quality choices those are necessary so the labor law needs to build choices and we need to also remember that choices are not built in isolation so the law can give you a choice but if there is no uh, infrastructure if there is no supporting institutional capacity then that choice is really an unreal choice it's not really an actual choice for example i can give someone a right to work till 9 pm but if there is no public transportation nor is there any company transportation they cannot really stay till 9 pm and earn their overtime and earn the extra money that they could have earned by this choice right so the last thing i would like to say is that you know in india operational health and safety particularly in manufacturing sector as a legal field has a very long and interesting history and this goes back much before our independence uh from that point onwards and women also have not really entered the workplace uh you know recently they have been in the workplace for a long time uh the mainstream economic theory that that tells us is that you know 
there should be a new shaped uh, participation of women so when economic growth goes up firstly the women will not be participating so much their participation will reduce and then over time their participation will pick back up so this hasn't happened in india to to the extent that we have high quality data available from the 1980s at least uh, we have seen only a dip we have seen high points and then from our recent history we have only seen a dip so in that kind of scenario where the mainstream economic theory is not clear or it doesn't match our condition i would also ask for a little bit of caution in saying that labor laws are the sole reason why we are not seeing women participating in the economy so we should not we should put responsibility on the laws yes but not solely on the laws absolutely the sole responsibility shouldn't be on labor laws however uh, in the new labor code especially the occupational safety health and working conditions code 2020 there has been some notable changes with respect to the employment of women in factories the earlier factories act 1948 had banned women from working in night shifts and women were also restricted from uh, being engaged in certain activities which were considered dangerous for them so with the new code coming into force these restrictions have been lifted but subject to certain conditions laid down in this uh, state rules now while the osh code seems to be more progressive and gender inclusive do you think that there is still an element of gender based discrimination in the law on the pretext of providing safety to women the very interesting question april and i think uh like off the top of my head i think i would like to say this that you know uh, choice is very important but choice should not cannot become a shorthand to remove protections or in any many ways where we see choice is used as a invitation to trade rights uh for one another so in the garment sector specifically i mean it's a non choice that women face where either it's a low quality under remunerative job which has frequent dangers or there is no job at all so those are not real choices uh in many cases i think uh, when you are asking about specific restrictions i think a lot of these restrictions uh, would apply to hazardous chemicals or to sensitive sectors uh and i would be hoping that you know this uh there is not this sense of parentalism that comes in where women are restricted from work that they can potentially do with the right kind of ppe with the right kind of training just on the pretext that certain parts of the workforce uh, needs to be protected from the entry of women right so having said that like i will just focus on one thing which you are saying like look night work is a one big progressive change that has come in under the uh, central central law right but central and it does provide a much bigger pool of the workforce to the employer and helps them plan the work better but if the code is as it is today and if there are no changes at the central level and no changes are coming at the state level uh, then these changes without changes that say you know that clearly lay down the responsibilities of both employer and the state uh, and doing a bunch of other things which i'll get into but without changes this is not going to work uh, the effect that the removal of the ban on night work on the night shift the expectation that there is that it will open up a whole part of the workforce uh, will not happen so what is actually needed is uh, maybe uh, 
you know like when you have these kind of rules you have protections what happens is usually employers under short term balance sheet pressure they will choose to hire more male workers or they'll be willing to let women workers go and they will only focus on the short term gain that the balance sheet gets they will not look at the long term gain wherein you know you could have invested a little bit more on your own accord could have kept this bunch of women around you could have helped them finish their training and you would have had a much more productive workplace and a much more loyal workplace so that is not something that people do or employers do because they are evil or they're twirling their evil mustache saying i'm going to take jobs away that is something that employers are forced to do by the market logic right they are forced to focus on their short term balance balance sheet so therein comes in the responsibility of the state so if there are protective measures uh, that are coming in for example in night work you ensure that there is a, more than one woman on the night shift for night work you ensure that there is safe transport you ensure that there is a crash facility you ensure that there is washroom facility you ensure that the washroom is well lit these kind of things the enforcement of it the monitoring the adjudication and particularly the financial burden of it these things need to be laid down very clearly otherwise we are going to lead, see a situation where the very specific thing that was brought in to benefit women becomes a tool to keep them out if we have seen this happen say in the crash facility requirement which is something that is slightly older than the labor codes right the maternity benefits act is much older than the labor codes when maternity benefits act came into the manufacturing sector particularly in the garment sector there was a lot of pressure push back you know saying that you know this is an extra cost but unless people sit down and figure out very early on how this cost is going to be borne and clearly this cost today is not going to be borne by one party or one actor right it has to be shared uh, in the garment sector for example in india the margins are low there is no one person or no one actor with huge deep pockets who can take care of all of it right so one thing i think we really need now and now that the central level rules and the central level code has kind of crystallized is that we need state level uh, operation health safety rules and those need to be in a race to the top where people and governments should be focusing on offering better and better deals to women and be open to migrant workers also so that a better workplace or an enabling environment pulls in uh, working populations and in india it's not really that uncommon like intra state migration is very high in india right so that i see as one way where we you know some of the good work that the code on osh has started that good work does not remain only on the law books but it actually comes out comes onto the field comes out in the factories not just leading to more employment in terms of numbers but better quality of employment and better earnings for women right and that's only how the final effect on the economy will be beyond just numbers uh, beyond just headline numbers it will be actual resilience in the economy right and with and one last thing i want to mention here and something i think is very familiar and as a i understand the privilege as a male researcher how this comes across uh, but i still say it you know which is the unsaid question in all of this which is the burden of care work uh, it is true of women in any sector be it white collar blue collar is true of women in the manufacturing sector it is particularly true in the garment sector so a lot of the workers that we talk to are women who are single mothers or who are running their household you know the only situation where they are uh, under the patriarchal norms that they live under the only situation where they come out of the house is when their husband is unable to work or the whole family cannot work so they are kind of people who are pulling their whole family along as sole bread earners so when they are the sole bread earners they come to the workplace they have to go back and they are burdened with care work 
and there is no real way of sharing that care work and they're burdened from both ends and these kind of women leave the workplace then it's in my book it's doubly tragic because we need to come to that understanding that unpaid care work that we see of this nature forms a base of all productive activity that happens in our economy whether it is uh, in many cases it is uh, numbered it is calculated in the gdp in many cases it is not and i think recently more people are trying to figure out ways wherein care work becomes a part of the gdp where it can be uh, you know like a number can be put onto it but that's only one part of the problem the problem bigger problem is envisaging uh, this issue as like the first or the basic issue that you know care work needs to be cared for so to speak one way in the garment sector that we have seen people trying to make a difference employers particularly is focusing on creches ensuring that creches are well run ensuring that creches are a welcoming space for new mothers and even for expecting mothers when they are working they see that place as a uh, place of hope where they do not see their upcoming pregnancy as a time and a money sink or an opportunity sink they see the creche and they are empowered to talk to their managers that yes i want to continue in this job yes i want to take a maternity leave but i want to be coming back and i want to come back on these terms it builds their confidence to negotiate and that negotiation can be through an union it can be through a worker rights organization it can be individual but at some level the base problem we should not lose track of which is that unpaid care work forms a huge part of the burden that we do not see at the workplace but we need to solve maybe at the workplace yes i totally agree with you on this point care work responsibilities are definitely one of the main social issues to be tackled uh, especially if we want more women to enter the workforce in fact as per the nss time use survey report 2019 it was found that 81.2% of women participate in unpaid domestic services spending an average of about 4 hours 59 minutes each day hence what according to you would be the most appropriate policy changes to bring in a more inclusive workforce in factories uh you know actually one thing that still bothers me is that even now when we talk about a gender inclusive workforce from the legal perspective only men and women are being considered and not the transgender community like even when we look at statistics we usually find that it's mostly given in binary it only considers you know the proportion of men as compared to the proportion of women one part of the com- uh, community is totally disregarded but coming back to our theme uh, i'd like to know overall what according to you shen could make the workforce in factories more gender inclusive yeah thank you for that april and i think that's a perspective that uh, is hugely missing even in the most progressive uh, progressive circles that we see right and the fact that you know gender is not just about men and women uh, but for coming to this question that you are asking to sum it up i want to say two two things you know like one is in the immediate term what we need and in the immediate term what we need is the ability for national governments and state governments to be able to talk to each other on labor reform uh, because this process has been uh, of course it has been contested there have been a uh, lot of resistance and lot of pushback uh, at the same time this process has been drawn out a long period of time so uh, at least state governments are on board if state governments are on board then 
there's an onus on the national government and state governments to come together and to ensure that we have that the reform circle is complete so to speak like we have our state laws which correspond to the national laws and most importantly our state laws and the national law uh, connects or is cognizant of the global supply chains so manufacturing india like we are not an autarchic state we are connected to the global markets and our decisions in this country at a commercial level are not just decisions made by indians sitting in india right they are connected to brand decisions they are connected to manufacturing decisions across the globe so our laws need to kind of become more sensitive and need to kind of start reflecting some of the international laws that we see so one one example would be there are due diligence supply chain due diligence laws that are coming out in the european union so we know a lot of uh, european uh, union orders come into the southern part of india like right? so in tamil nadu uh, so there must be a some kind of thought from the state of tamil nadu where they are trying and linking their state level laws to the global supply chain laws to make sure that you know like supply chains are transparent they are as transparent as they are in germany as they are in tamil nadu and that's for all our benefits uh, in terms of what we need from that transparency there are three things that we need and i will reiterate one is wages need to live uh, need to be of that standard of living wages how it happens is a question that uh, there are many answers to it can be through a state uh, mandated minimum wage law i have my own skepticism about whether that will work on its own uh, there are ways of getting manufacturers brands in the global north as well as workers and civil society to come together and agree to a wage which is a living wage and this is a first step the second step needs to be skilling to ensure that you know career opportunities are not stagnating for women at all levels of the value chain so the workforce can be retained skilled and that skill can be there for a long period of time and thirdly of course being the care burden like the care burden in general we need we need laws and we need an understanding of how care work can be valued and we also need to value it at the workplace to the limited extent that we can uh, the second part of my answer would be that you know a lot of what we we'll look at and particularly as lawyers i feel there's a lot of hubris where we think drafting a perfect law can solve a lot of our problems many a time that is not the case many a time i think the workers know best what will really solve the problems in the short and medium term of course you need regulatory approval but there are many good ideas like one good idea is contained in the ilo convention c190 that talks about the freedom of association so in india's case we really need to urgently ratify that convention we need to make it easier for women to form their uh, cooperatives to form their unions if they want to call that a union to form their self help groups whatever groups that they form to be able to come together and articulate what they want and be able to set up a system of lasting change not just a system of where one person gets what they need and then they exit out of the industry and is the same for the rest of them right so in the long term i do think empowering people to come and negotiate and uh, coming together uh, with solutions that involve all three main actors which is the state the employer and the workers that would be the way forward Thank you Shane for sharing your thoughts on how we could create a more women inclusive workspace. I'm hopeful of a more gender inclusive workforce in the future. Let's see what happens when the new labor codes unfold. Yes, looking forward to speaking further with you guys. With that, we've come to the end of this episode. You can follow and engage with us on our social media handles 
where we look forward to taking this conversation forward with all of you. We will be back with another thought-provoking and interesting topic for discussion in the next episode. Stay tuned to www.cppr.in.